Hello, and welcome to the James Sheets Podcast. This podcast features the sermons and preaching messages of James Sheets, who pastored throughout West Virginia for many years. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a five-star review and share a memory of James with us. Let's listen as Pastor James Sheets begins his message. I have a message that the Lord gave to Ephesus. We need to go back as a preliminary and study just a little bit take a look at the city itself to get the framework in which this this church was located. You do recall that these churches were new churches established primarily by Paul throughout uh, Asia Minor actually. There were seven of them. All of these towns did actually exist. There were Christian churches in each of these places. And the Lord sent a message to each of these churches. Each message was different based upon the need of the individual church. But they certainly can be expanded to be applied in some degree to, I believe, every church today. And we will find something in each of these letters that perhaps will apply to us, that we can learn from, and we can use as a, as a basis for becoming a better church for the, for the cause of Christ. We start with Ephesus because this is the first of the seven letters. And we find that there is a city by the name of Ephesus. At the time of the writing of this letter, it was the greatest city in Asia. It had a tremendous harbor, and anybody that intended to go into Asia used this as the gateway. Even from Israel, they would come across the Mediterranean Sea and around the coastline just a little bit to the city of Ephesus and there uh, anchor their ships and, and go inland from there. And so it was really the gateway of Asia, and many, many people came through that city in their travels. It was a very wealthy city. As a matter of fact, it was probably the wealthiest city of all of Asia. So it had a lot of things going for it. It was a free city, which meant that it did not have to have a Roman garrison uh, stationed within it. They had been so faithful to the Roman Empire that the uh, Caesar had granted Ephesus the status of a free city, which meant they governed themselves. So they were exempt from any kind of Roman soldiers within them. It was a city uh, where the, the great trials of that day took place. If there was to be a famous trial of some sort, then the judge would travel to Ephesus and there he would hold his court. So it had some legal status. It was a site of the Roman games that were played between the different cities. But the most important thing about the city was it was a religious center, a very religious city. And one would immediately begin to think, well, this must be a marvelous town to be so religious. If someone tells you they are religious, we've got to be careful how we react to that. There are very few people that are not religious. These people were religious. They worshipped a goddess, a pagan goddess, 
called Diana. As I mentioned in the message this morning, very briefly, she was the goddess of love, which takes all the connotations that you can place on that word love, which was sexual in, in nature, and it was a part of the worship in the temple. As a matter of fact, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was the temple to Diana. It was 420 feet long. That's almost one and a half times the length of a football field. It was 224 feet wide. It had 120 huge pillars along its perimeter. These pillars were 60 feet high, a magnificent building, all dedicated to the worship of a pagan goddess. I don't know if you recall back to your high school history days or not, but you may remember that in Ephesus you could buy a letter that guaranteed that you would have good fortune. Now if that were literally possible, most of us would be hurrying over to the city of Ephesus to be purchasing, our, purchasing us a letter that we could carry on our person that just by its very presence would guarantee us good fortune. Many, many hundreds and perhaps thousands of people made a pilgrimage to the city of Ephesus in order that they might buy from the Temple of Diana this little piece of paper that they would carry in their wallet, as we would today, or somewhere on their person that was supposed to assure them of all this good fortune. Prostitution in that temple was rampant, both female and male. The temple itself was an asylum for criminals. It was the law that if you could make your way into the courtyards of the Temple Diana, no one could harm you. The police could not come in and arrest you, and as long as you stayed inside that courtyard, you were safe. And so it became quite a collecting place of all of the robbers and murderers and every other possible crime that was committed against society, they were collecting around the, the temple Diana. Heraclitus, and I referred to him this morning, a philosopher of those days, made this comment, separate from the one I quoted this morning, that no one could live in Ephesus without weeping over its immorality. It was a, a city of absolute sin. And yet, in the midst of this town, we come up with names like Apollos, Aquila, and Priscilla. And it was in this town that Paul preached and found some people, a few individuals, who would listen to him and who believed the gospel that he preached, and if they formed a church. And over the years, there were more converts to that little body. First one person, and then two, and then four, and it began to multiply as those converts went out to win others. It became a, a fine church in that town. Not only is it the home of Aquila and Priscilla, but the legend is that John the Baptist took the mother of, of Jesus, Mary, took her to that town, where she lived out her days. There's nothing in the scripture that says that, but there is a legend that indicates that this was where she lived her final days. 
And in the midst of this town, then we find a church to whom uh, the Lord writes a letter. And in the first verse, he tells John to write a letter unto the angel of the church of Ephesus. These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand and walk in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Now before we can continue, we've got to identify some things. If you go back to the 20th verse of the first chapter, right preceding, there is an explanation of the seven stars and the angels and the golden candlesticks. The seven stars, which are the angels, and if you take the Greek for the word angel, it's going to mean messenger. And in some translations you will find the translation saying unto the leader of the church at Ephesus. Many other places it will say to the pastor of the church at Ephesus. So the, the stars or the angels is the pastor or the leader of the church, and the golden candlesticks, that's the church itself. And he says a couple of very important things in this first verse. I want you to write unto the angel or to the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And these are the things I want you to say to him. He that holds the seven stars or the seven angels in his hand is the one who's talking. Now, that becomes interesting when you, when you tear into the Greek a little bit to discover it's talking about the kind of holding in one's hand as you would do with a little baby bird. Totally engulfed within the palm of the hand so that it's absolutely under your control but also under your protection. Nothing can get at it, nothing can harm it, and you have complete control. I believe that the Lord used these words particularly to tell us that he does that, what that very hymn that we oftentimes sing said. He has the little bitty babies in his hand. He has you and me, brother, in his hand. He has the whole world in his hand. Not sitting on the hand, but completely engulfed within his control. This is what we need. And we need to nestle within the control and the, the harborage of God's control instead of trying to get out from under it. When Jesus said to Peter, when uh, he asked Peter, who do men say that I am? And Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded in Matthew chapter 16, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed us unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now what is he saying? There is no way that God is going to allow his church to disappear to be overcome, to be destroyed. The church will always be, for Jesus Christ himself ordained that it would be, and that it would remain unto the end. The gates of hell may shake our churches, and there may be churches that will disappear, and I'll have to say something about that in a moment. 
But the church is here to stay in this world. And there is nothing anybody can do about it to destroy it because he holds it within his hand, in his total grasp. John chapter 10 and verses 27 to 29 says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my Father's hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. No one, no person on the face of this earth is able to take away from God that which belongs to God. That's why I believe that I can claim salvation for my soul without reservation. Because I committed myself unto the Lord and I put myself in His control. And no man is able to take me out of my Father's hand. No man is able to take the church out of the Father's hand. Jesus goes on to say, I am the one that walks among the candlesticks. The church is the candlestick, he says. And he walks among his churches. Now what's he doing here? Well, first of all, I'm sure he wants to have fellowship with his, his own. But sometimes he has to come to chasten us. I know in Revelation 3rd chapter and the 19th verse, which is one we will deal with more extensively when we get to the church of the Laodiceans. But to them, he says, whom I love, I rebuke and chasten. I believe the Lord will chasten us as his church. He will deal with us accordingly as we have need to be dealt with because we are in his control. Now look at verse 2. He says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou cast them uh, can't not bear them that are evil. And you've tried them which say they are apostles and are not. I know thy works and thy labor. I've got to go to Greek again. Remember the word kopos, K-O-P-O-S. I don't care whether you remember the word or not, but I want you to remember the meaning of it. The meaning is important. He is commending them for the work that they are accomplishing for the labor that they're putting in to, to that church, commending them. The word copos that is used for work or labor here means total commitment. He is saying, I know your total commitment. That's the kind of commitment they had. You've heard the story, have you, about the chicken and the pig when we were having a discussion over the breakfast that was on the table, there was ham and eggs for breakfast. And the chicken was bragging what a contribution she had made to the breakfast in that she had contributed an egg. And the pig said, well, to you, that may be a good contribution, but to me, it's total commitment. This is what 
the Lord is after in his church is total commitment. He wants work and labor that commits ourselves to, to him completely. There's a hymn that says, You have longed for sweet peace and for faith to increase and, and have earnestly, fervently prayed, but you cannot have rest or be perfectly blessed until all on the altar is laid. Is your all on the altar a sacrifice laid? Your heart does the spirit control. You can only be blessed and have peace and sweet rest as you yield him your body and soul. This church had that kind of commitment. They went even a step further. They discovered that there were people coming into their midst who claimed to be Christian and were not. As a matter of fact, they even went further. They claimed to be preachers of the gospel, apostles, who were followers of Christ, and they put them to the test. One of the well, the, maybe the greatest problem that the church then had is the same problem that the church now has, that oftentimes the problems are within and not without. It doesn't make any difference what I say from this pulpit. If it does not coincide with what God says in his word, it should not be believed. We must try the beliefs and the concepts and the doctrines of people to see if they're scriptural. We cannot be satisfied with taking individual interpretations that will wash in God's washing. This is a thing that's happening and many people are being led astray, and you can find little dots of churches up and down every hollow in West Virginia where people are being led astray by the preaching of something that is not the Scripture. It's somebody's individual opinion that will not stand under the pressures of the Scripture. They did that. And we ought to do that. I'll never forget a service I was in one time. I didn't think about saying this, but I will because it came to mind. In which a stranger came into the congregation, the revival meeting, and he stood up and said, you want to say something? He told the pastor of the church to let Sort of tickled me after it was all over. He got up and started talking about handling snakes. And we suddenly discovered what we had in our midst. And the pastor tried to figure out how to get him off the platform. And he finally had to get up and tell him that he just had to sit down. We'd heard enough. We've got to be cautious in many ways as to what we allow. And be sure that it's scripture. What is taught and what is preached in the church must be what is in this book. This we must be sure of. All right. Let's go on to something else. In verse 4, he says, However, 
When you put the word however, there's, a, there's something devastating about to be spoken. I've bragged on you about your fine work, but he says, however, there's something wrong. I've got something against you. Because you have left your first love. Their enthusiasm had waned. Very likely their Bible study and their reading of the scriptures had gone to the wayside. They weren't praying much. A church attendance had gone down. Love of the brethren was gone. Love of the lost was gone. They had become satisfied with their status. I remember preaching at a church one time when some of the people of the church told me we don't want to grow. We're satisfied with just the way we are. I believe the Lord would have said to that church, I have somewhat against you. It ought to be our desire to win every person to Jesus Christ that we can find to testify to. But we're only going to do it if we keep our enthusiasm for God's house and His Word and study and pray and fellowship together in His church. And when we see these things faulting and failing, we can be sure that we're not prepared to win the lost because we haven't cleansed our own house. So he had something against them. Then he gives them uh, the admonition, the encouragement, the direction to change in verse 5. I'm going to show you three words here in this verse. There's three words. The first word is remember. He calls him to remembrance. As the prodigal son remembered when he had gone away from home and was in a foreign country and had wasted all of his substance, and now he realized that what he had done was wrong, he remembered his father's house and the way it was there. And it brought him to repentance. And then he asks them to repent. Remember and then repent. And that's what the prodigal did. And he decided to go home and he got there. He was down on his face before his father in the dirt and with tears running down his face, he cried out, Father, I have sinned against you. And I'm not worthy to be called your son. Well, there's many a church person who needs to be down on his or her knees before God and crying those same words. See, we sin against God. But I believe we also sin against the church. It grieves me when God's own people destroy by word of mouth or by deed the very thing that the church to which they belong stands for. But in 33 years of standing behind the pulpit, I have seen it happen time and time and time again. The problems of the church are from within. As we destroy that which we say we love. 
We make fun of that which we say is honorable. We mock that which we say we worship. And he tells the church to repent. And then he says, thirdly, to do that which is good. Do the first works. James said in 4.17, To him that knoweth to do good, and do it not, to him it is sin. We don't often think about that as being sin. If you know something is supposed to be done, and you don't do it, you are sinning. As much so as if you did some uh, immorality. Now, what's the consequences? He says, if you will not. I will remove your candlestick. You see that? By the way, the little the town of Ephesus, that huge city of Ephesus, is no longer a city. It's a little insignificant village, six miles from the ocean because the silt had, had fired on in there all this time. There is no magnificent town there, no huge a temple to the goddess Diana. I'm not sure if there's a Christian church there or not. But it went into destruction. And God promised them that if that church did not get back to what it ought to be, to where it once was, that he would in fact remove its candlestick. Now I want you to couple that statement with what I said earlier. When we are in the control of God, no man is able to pluck us out of God's hand, but God can take the candlestick out. Now, if we succeed, we have a reward in verse 7. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the church. To him that overcometh, I will give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. You know the tree of life all the way back in, in the book of Genesis. In the Garden of Eden, when Satan caused Adam and Eve to sin, God drove them out of that garden and put cherubims at the gates of it to keep them out in order that they would not eat of this tree of life. The old rabbis used to describe the tree of life in, in this manner. They said it was a huge tree whose boughs encompassed the entire paradise and it had 500,000 different fragrances coming from the trees. There was equally 500,000 different fruits upon it and every one of them had a different taste. This was a description of the tree in, uh, as they imagined it. Adam lost the ability to dwell under the tree and to eat of its fruits and to partake of eternal life. But what Adam lost, Christ regained. Gave us back the opportunity to eat of the tree of life that is in paradise. The Greek word for paradise simply means where the king lives. Where the king lives. I will give to him to eat of the tree of life where the king lives, who is God himself. 
in the Christian's eternal life in the presence of God. A strong letter to the church at Ephesus. Certainly a strong letter to us to recognize that although we have many good things happening, there are those things that we must be careful of, and that is to be sure that we have not lost our zeal, our first love, our desire to serve the Lord, that we work for Him with, with total commitment, and that we take, if we have not kept that commitment, we take the steps that are necessary to remember, to repent, and to return to the first works. If we will do that, then the church will prosper and be blessed, and God will be glorified. If the church will not do that, then the Lord reserves the right to remove it out of its place. And up and down this land, I see buildings, church buildings, that are sitting vacant. Huge buildings. Once were full of people. And why are they empty? It's because the people within that congregation evidently had lost their first love, and God took their candlestick out. Let's be sure that the candlestick stays here. Let's be a lighthouse in this community for the cause of Christ. Shall we pray? Thank you for listening to today's message. If you like what you hear, hit the subscribe button. You'll receive automatic notifications and downloads when a new message is added to the podcast. Also, please leave a five-star review and take the opportunity to share stories, memories, and appreciation for James Sheets and how God used him to impact your life. If you'd like to know why and how this podcast got started, check out our first episode. Lastly, if you want to donate to help offset the cost of operating this podcast, you'll find a link to our PayPal account in the podcast description and email us at james.com sheets.podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and remember to trust in God for today and for all of your tomorrows.